Hey guys, welcome back to my podcast, Say. I'm your host, Jana Ali. My next guest is a talented spoken word artist that uses her heritage and experience to tell such inspiring and important stories. Breaking barriers in her community outreach work, she completes the well-known platform we all know as Brown Girl Diaries. Marisha, why don't you finish introducing yourself so that I don't miss anything because there's so many layers to you. Thanks, Jana. Um, so my name's Narosha and I am from Canada, but I'm currently in the UK. I'm studying my master's in education, globalization, international development, mouthful, um, at the University of Cambridge. And I work as the community outreach officer for the Brown Girl Diary. I've been working with them for over a year now. We've been doing some incredible work um, in helping to highlight the Indo-Caribbean community on a larger international platform. And I myself am Indo-Caribbean um, as well as Tamil Sri Lankan. So having a mixed South Asian Caribbean identity is really quite interesting to be navigating in these spaces. Yeah, I mean, that's something I really want to dive into your mixedness, which I didn't put initially on the questions that I sent to you. But I think as we delved into it on the live that we did, I've got so many like, just questions just so that I want to know personally. But let's start off with the simplest one that everyone gets asked, like, what does it mean to be Indo-Caribbean to you? Yeah. For me, it means being able to walk into spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to have this fusion hybrid identity but one that has so much history to it and I think it's it's quite different for me in terms of being Indo-Caribbean and having been maybe just Caribbean or just Indian because there's some kind of history as to how my people got to the Caribbean as to how this and a history that isn't really out there told it's a hidden history one that I'm still discovering and trying to figure out um, so for me, what it means, it, it means just being able to embrace multiple facets of my identity mm. and being able to have feet in two worlds and, and to proudly stand in those two places and not feel like I have to choose to be in one or the other. Right. Yeah, it's so true. And so you're mixed, obviously, and the, your other side, Tamil Sri Lankan, Mm-hmm. is south asian and obviously your indo-caribbean heritage is south asian yeah. um so how do those things kind of i mean i feel like it's a bit different normally when we're like talking to mixed people or you're interacting with mixed people it's usually two very like contrasting polar opposite cultures mm-hmm. they they literally like the, i mean there'll probably be similarities but in terms of like the cultural quirks customs traditions they're all yeah. very different however yours I would only assume um, often meet sometimes and then also maybe there might be, I mean, I know personally from sometimes my reception from uh, people from the South Asian community, it isn't often a welcoming one because of our history. So how is, how does, how is that presented in your identity? How does that work? Yeah, I think it's, it's quite interesting that you say that, you know, like I come from two very similar places, but they can't be more different. Um, mm. Growing up and realizing just how different both sides of my family were and how different the cultures were. And I always tell people, you know, um, we have a lot of conversations about being mixed race and we have mm. a lot of conversation about, you know, navigating that. And I'm just like, being mis- mixed cultural and mi- mixed within the ethnic identity is a struggle in its own because 
there's all of these different, like even the religion itself, both sides of my family are Hindu, but being Hindu in the Tamil culture, being Hindu in the Trinidadian culture are different. There's different mm. days that they observe and they fast on. They celebrate Diwali on different days. They celebrate Diwali in different oh. ways. Um, you know, in the Tamil community, they eat meat on Diwali, whereas in our community in Trinidad, we don't. So it's, it's this like very different way of even how religion operates within these yeah. cultures, right? So it's, um, I grew up going to Tamil temples and everything was always in that language um, that I didn't understand. And then as I got older, I was introduced to the West Indian temples. And then mm. I went there and I was like, oh, wow. So they're speaking in English. I can understand what they're saying. So again, there, we may pray to the same gods. We may have the same or different versions of stories mm. along the lines, but there's still a significant way that's different in the way that the, the culture carries out mm. uh, and the traditions are upheld. I think, you know, as you said about the struggle of being accepted by the South Asian community, it's real about that whole trying to push for validity of yeah. we are Indians, we are South Asian. You know, I think when my parents came to Canada years ago, it was a huge culture shock for all the immigrants to see that there were other immigrants from other countries. I think everyone was coming you know, from abroad, and they had no idea where Trinidad was, what Trinidad, mm. what the Indo-Caribbean. Yeah. Um, everyone's assumption of the Caribbean was Jamaica. Mm. And, you know, so they had their own, their own connotations about what that looked like and how somebody could be from the Caribbean and have Indian ancestry. That was just not knowledge that, you know, was being talked about in Sri Lanka. Yeah. when they were growing up so I think it was a huge difference in terms of being able to be accepted into the community at that point in time um I know my parents obviously broke boundaries by getting married and yeah. doing the intercultural thing and now you have generations in my family that are marrying Guyanese and everyone's just mixing up now but at that point it was a battle it was a battle for my mom to try and get the Tamil community to see her as valid mm -hmm. you know to see her as someone that is good enough to marry their son because you know, she comes from a decent family, she comes from a good place, and that being Caribbean doesn't doesn't take away from that. Yeah, and I feel like your job kind of must, like, as an in, uh, a, mixed, um, mm -hmm. a mixed kid must be even harder, because I feel like when I don't know something about one of my cultures, I mean, it's a bit of a cop-out to be like, oh, but I'm half Egyptian, so like, <laughs> like, you know, like, I'm not gonna, but I feel like not a lot of people do know that, perhaps your two cultures are so different and so when you are in a south asian um sit like amongst south asian people or even yeah. amongst indo-caribbean people they must assume that you just get it you fit into the culture you're around it but and not know that there are so many like nuances within there so that must be even hard because how do you even explain that to people people already find it hard to recognize what Indo-Caribbean is you know yeah and I think I never really identified with the word Indo-Caribbean because I didn't know it for so many years right yeah. um, I would just tell people I'm Trini and like in Toronto where I'm from you know everyone knows what that is they know what it is to be Trini mm. um going outside of the big city everyone's gonna be like what so at that point I changed to I'm Caribbean so, you know, I change what I am based on who I'm around, mm. who could understand me without, without them asking too much of where is that or, right. you know. Um, so I think, yeah, it's really interesting. I think it would have maybe to be different if I was maybe not necessarily different, but if it was Indo-Caribbean and Indian even, because mm. the Sri Lankan identity is very different from the Indian identity. Like 
the Sri Lankan community, the Tamil community, um, like things like Bollywood, things right. like Hindi, all of that, that's not, it's a whole different world in the Tamil community, yeah. right? Tamil is the mother tongue there, right? Not Hindi. Mm-hmm. Um, their movies are in Tamil. They have Hollywood, which is a whole other genre. So it was very two different worlds. Like maybe if I was Indian and Indo-Caribbean, I could mm-hmm. be able to relate to the family more to say like, well, like, you know, like I watch Bollywood too. And like, you know, I know these words in Hindi as well. Yeah. But because it's Tamil, it's such a distinct piece of the South Asian community that is also a minority within South Asian communities as well. I think that has its own aspect of them being very contrasting from one another, being Trini and Tamil. Yeah. But it's interesting because as I've done more research about indentorship, you know, I learned so much that a lot of indentured laborers actually came from Tamil descent. Oh, wow. And Tamil Nadu, India. Yeah. So it's really interesting where, because my mom recently did her ancestry DNA test um, and it came back, I think like 70% South Indian and South is where Tamil Nadu is. So it's interesting that she may even have Tamil roots um, as a Trinidadian. I think I have South Indian in my DNA test as well. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, like, it took so long to be accepted into this community when all along she could very much have come in from that very same community this whole time. Oh my God. Yeah, that's so true. But you're right. It's very much like a balancing act of words a lot of the time. Like even I find that like when I'm around certain people, even the Egyptian side changes, like sometimes I'm Egyptian, sometimes I'm Arab. It's sometimes I'm even like Turkish because there's like some sort of small part of Turkey in our heritage. Um, And I get that because I feel like a lot of the times, like when people hear Egypt, they they associate it with the broader spectrum of Arabs. Um, yeah. But like the Egyptian culture is very different to the Arab culture as well. Like mm-hmm. there's similarities there, of course. But in terms of like, if you look at all of the um, the countries that are involved in that word Arab, um, Egypt's quite different. And even in like the North African situation, like Egypt's very different to like Algeria and Morocco. So I get that of like people associating you to this like broader picture when you're actually very, very different. And it kind of gives this misconception of your knowledge or your identity. So you are from Canada (laughs) where if I'm right, the Indo-Caribbean identity is well established there. Um, I, from, so I'm very new to the Indo-Caribbean community in Toronto. So growing up, I grew up more so with the Tamil community. Um, So for me, I didn't really know until I was older and started to seek it out myself because most of my Caribbean family is back home in Trinidad. So, um, and even so, like I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't go to the community events, the, the West Indian stuff, like that was not something that. I did I think that was a bit of a thing growing up mixed too and having two different identities so now as I start to delve into that and working with Brown Girl Diary I've noticed that there is a big Indo-Caribbean community there is in Toronto I wouldn't say Canada in general Mm. um I would say in our in our main city Toronto where you would have a much larger community and you know we have Caribana which is like carnival and you know it's massive people come from around the world for it brings in I think the most money to the city it's one of the biggest events every year um so the Indo-Caribbean community is definitely quite affluent there it's 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 there it's visible Mm. but I don't know how much um that it gets its own 
space. I think only recently we got Indo-Caribbean on like the census. Like, oh, wow. I think, yeah, I think this year I was filling out a government form and I saw it as an option. I was like, wow. So I think it hasn't always, the people have always been there, right. but their own space in, in the city and in the community, I think they've always either fallen into Black Caribbean mm. or they've fallen into South Asian. Like there's never been a space of Indo-Caribbean alone. Right. So it's kind of uh, kind of a bit like here, it sounds like. Yeah. But I feel like maybe a bit, maybe like two steps ahead because we're still fighting no, yeah. to, <laughs> to try and get some stuff. But so yeah. this, this now newly established to you Indo-Caribbean community that you found, what mm-hmm. does that look like to you? Is it because here it's, we don't have, well, at least I'm not a part of this incredibly well-established Indo-Caribbean community. So I don't know what that looks like. I know what the Afro-Caribbean community looks like. Yeah. I can tell you everything about that, but yeah. I couldn't tell you what. It, so what does that look like for you? What is specifically Indo-Caribbean that you can see is, is operating in, um, in the communities? Yeah. Well, definitely. I think when I think about our community, I think about all the aspects of our culture, so food, music, right. um, dance. So, you know, these are again things that I've newly been introduced to the food stuff I've always known like the West Indian grocery stores we have those the places you can go to get your pepper sauce to get your chubby to get everything that's getting straight imported you have your you know your aunties and your uncles running the store like that yeah. just walking into home and so that I grew up around because obviously that's where my mom would go to get stuff yeah. Um, and it was only in the recent years that I started to attend more events so like fets and stuff mm. that Toronto loves to put on. We got a lot of, we have a big DJ culture. We have a big um, FET culture. And so, you know, there, you have your larger Soka events, Caribana, but you also have your Chutney events. And your Chutney events, you know, is a little bit more catered to that Indo-Caribbean mm. community where you look around and you see that sea of people that, that look like you, that can be brown, look South Asian, but also are Caribbean people. So in those events, you see a little bit more of that. Um, and then you have things like, so we have like dance schools and stuff, and we have dance groups that do like Indo-Caribbean dancing. And these are things that I, again, discovered more recently. I think Brown Girl Diary has really helped me learn about what is going on in my community mm. uh, and what has been there for time. And I just didn't know about it. What has yeah. been happening in the community? Um, I don't know. There's a couple of little grassroots organizations that are doing work and having, you know, critical panels and conversations and, I think one of the universities um, recently had like a Caribbean studies. Uh, I don't know if it was a department or a course or something. Oh but my I gosh. Think, yeah, I think there's more people that are kind of flooding towards there. There's a couple of people I know that are doing PhDs in like chutney um, and no yeah, chutney and dancing and um, whining and all of these different, like they're bringing in those aspects into academia. Wow. So, so the Indo-Caribbean people are, are making their way into these spaces. Um, they've always existed and they've always held their community in spaces. Uh, and obviously you have your temples is what yeah. I'm familiar with. I'm not familiar with like the mosques and mosques or the churches there. Right. Yeah. But I'm familiar with the West Indian temples that are like known by to have like pundits from Trinidad or Guyana. Um, but these are the little aspects that I've been kind of expanding and learning more about. 
See, the, I need to come to Toronto because yes, this, is, this is the atmosphere I'm looking for. Literally, like last year, I was like, I was considering doing a master's because it's like lockdown, and I was like, hey, let's just get like a qualification out of it. Yeah. And then I was like, hey, like, wouldn't it be so cool if I can get like a master's in like Indo Caribbean studies? And obviously, yeah. they don't do it here. Like, they only do like Caribbean studies, and then I guess you could go into Indo Caribbean studies within yeah. that. And so I was like, hmm, should I do it? But the only reason I wanted to do it is because I'm the type of person where when like there is a lack thereof, I feel a responsibility to provide it for some yeah. reason. I think maybe yeah. that's just, I don't know. I, but yeah, so I was like, oh, I need to do that. But that's so amazing like to hear that. Like my dream is to walk into, like I've seen Little Guyana like a lot on Instagram yeah. in New York. And like I dream of the day that I can go there, walk in there and just feel like I'm at home and like the, yeah. the accents and the, oh, I'm just waiting for it all. Um, mm-hmm. But you're currently studying at the highly prestigious Cambridge <laughs> University. Um, the, well, actually, before I get into this question, yeah. so Oxford and Cambridge here is like the be-all and end-all of universities. And mm-hmm. I would love to know what the perception of it is to people that are not in the UK or from the UK. Yeah. Um, I definitely think it, they also have very high, they're very high, they're very prestigious. I think they're, um, when we think about the top universities in the world, it's Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, yeah. Yale, Princeton, like those are the names, just American and UK. And that obviously has to do a lot with colonialism and Eurocentrism and like, you know, like buying into the Western way is the best way. And so for sure, I think that is kind of, they have very, they stand very high. Um, people ask me like, what's the Oxford of Canada? And I'm like, I don't know that we have one. Like I don't, <laughs> I, I almost see all of the universities in Canada quite equally. Like I know okay. U, of T, U of T, um, is a really good one and it's known to be one of the top, I think they rank well in the world as well. Yeah. Um, but I, I see it as just UFT because I grew up in Toronto. So it's, yeah. it doesn't like you know like it's almost like growing up in London and then being like oh UCL's the best and it's like I grew up here and I saw this place my entire life I feel like the best is somewhere else like you know so I think yeah it's hard for me to pick a place in Canada to say this is the Cambridge I think I don't think anything compares to the way the UK and the US hold up Ivy Leagues yeah I, I would agree because like even here like it's a bit different but education here is like race like such a high standard and like we're always told like the British education is like the best education and so for us like when we see these schools we're like oh my god like you have to be Einstein to get in like it's really like and then or if you hear like especially if it's like an ethnic person's like my son's going to Oxford you're like like but, but yeah. there. like, like yeah. it's like it's, it's a big deal so like I was just wondering because it's just like it is a bit of like a, a hype a bit about it but it, I I can understand it because th- there is like a long history there you know yeah. what I mean but yeah. how did um how what led you to to Cambridge why Cambridge how did you end up yeah. applying getting in girl that's a whole story we have a youtube series on that um oh my gosh yeah, i have a six episode series on the journey to oxbridge but basically in 2018 mm-hmm. 
in my final, yeah, in 2018, that was my fourth year of my undergrad. And I was applying to masters and I knew I wanted to come to the UK. That was like always a okay. dream to come back to the UK because I did a semester abroad the year before. Right. Um, and I was born in the UK. And so um, just coming back here, something felt right about it. And I was like, I want to study here. And I was also like, you know, if I'm trying to be out here challenging the systems, like what better place to talk about decolonization than the most colonial place in the world? And like, if I can challenge stuff here, then I can very much go back to Canada and challenge stuff there. That's so, so yeah. yeah, so that was kind of, I really wanted to expand. And like I said, I felt like I had done not everything I could in Canada, but I felt like I, you know, went to a really great school there. I took all of the opportunities and I was like, hey, what's next for me? And I was mm. like, let me try and do what's the next best in the UK for me. Mm. Um, initially, Oxford and Cambridge, like they were just places I was applying to, but they weren't like number one choices because I genuinely didn't think I had the grades to get in. Um, I didn't think that, you know, it was possible. And so when I got my offer to Oxford, it was the first school I applied to because the deadline was so early and I hadn't applied anywhere else and I got it. So I stopped applying to other places. So I was like, why would I pay more money to apply to more places when I just got into Oxford? Right. So I accepted, I was like, whoo, it was a two year program in development studies. Um, And then I was finishing my fourth year and it comes to like July, I'm supposed to start the course in October. And July, you're supposed to submit your financial declaration saying that I have X amount of money. Here's my proof, whatever. As an international student, mm. literally like double and a half the price of what yeah. local students pay. Like, it's insanely crazy how much money we have to pay for tuition. Yeah, I know. Um, and so this whole time I'm waiting on maybe scholarships, funding, anything to come through. Nothing comes through. And then I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go to the bank and I'm ready to take out a loan. Mm. And the bank rejects me because, um, yeah, because I come from a single income family. So only my dad works in my household, not my mom. Mm. And so he, and in Canada, to get like a student loan, you need to get someone to sign with you, a co-signer to say, if this person doesn't pay the loan, I will be the guarantor um, and take responsibility. But because my dad was single income, he was the only one supporting my family. Um, and based on his financial situation, they were just like, he's not strong enough to sign for you. He can't take on this much money. Oh and so I literally am sitting here like, wait, you're not going to give me money to go to school. Like this is yeah. literally the loan that I will pay back. And they were like, you're going abroad. I'm like, even though it's Oxford, like even though it's Oxford, it was like, you know, so it was a crashing dream for me. It was really hard to come to those terms of like, this may not happen and like I think I was in denial for so long I was like no no I'll find a way I'll find a way until it hit me right before my graduation I was like I have to withdraw I was like I'm not gonna go next year and so one of the toughest things I've ever done especially because everybody knew I was going to Oxford at that point like had already shared family friends my school everybody knew I was going when I got in and so to just have to share that I would no longer be going and they wouldn't let you defer either They're like financial situations aren't any grounds to defer so um yeah they wouldn't let me hold the spot for a year to even say let me like save the money let me figure it out it was like no you lose your spot if you don't have the money so I had no guarantee I would ever get back again but I remember sitting down that night and saying well this absolutely sucks that find my financial status is the reason why I'm not going yeah. to schools in the world when I have literally done the work since I was a child. I have worked so hard to get to this point. Just Any to other reason that. would have been better than that. 
any you other know what I mean? and, and girls not even like I was like I don't want to take the loan I don't want to put myself in debt I was ready to put myself yeah in debt. I was willing I went to the bank like ready to sign my life away and be like I'll spend my rest of my life paying this. And just like no we can't even give you the loan and I was like wow I didn't know you can get rejected from for that I didn't know oh my that God. Um, and so it was really tough because obviously the government like uh, I know you guys get student loans from the government and yeah. we get that in Canada, but that's to study in Canada. So when you're studying abroad, you get like, like a very, very little bit about, but you don't get enough to cover, especially international tuition. Um, oh and being God. a first generation student, I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know where to look for scholarships. I didn't know how mm. to look for scholarships. I didn't know my parents didn't go to university in these Western countries. Like they didn't know how to advise me. So I was literally doing it all while doing my fourth year you know, working part-time, doing all of these things. And so I missed out on a lot of scholarship opportunities I could have applied to, but I just didn't know where to look for. Yeah. So yeah. I decided, I remember, you know, I went from crying mode to I'm going to open my laptop and figure out my next game plan. And I remember sitting down and saying, okay, well, this program is two years and it costs so much money. I was like, what if I tried to do a one-year program, you know, cut that cost in half, would I be able to get alone approved for that instead um and so i started to look at one-year programs and then i found this one um at oxford and Cambridge. there's two options in education and i thought about it and i was like you know what like i was going to do development studies but why not mix education in the mix because one to be a specialist in that field but also because i've seen now for myself just how inaccessible the education system can be in higher education, even when you're from the West, even when, you know, you've come from a university degree background, you still are struggling to access yeah. higher education. Yeah. So for me, I was like, okay, what can I do about this? And so I found a one-year program and some of my mentors told me about um, this like fellowship from my university that, you know, they thought I had a good chance at and you would get funding for one year for a certain amount. It still didn't cover everything, but it was a good, I think it was almost... 30,000 so it was a good amount to cover at least half so I was like okay you know what that's going to be my goal to try and get that fellowship to go for a one-year program so for someone that loves to plan my entire life out I finally came to a crossroads where I had no job lined up no school I was graduating and I was like wow like for once I don't know what's next mm -hmm. but it took a year I found a job I worked um, and then, you know, I would work on the applications, I'd work on the scholarship applications. And that was, it was literally Oxford, Cambridge, Oxford, Cambridge. I was like, I need to get back into Oxford, apply for the first time to Cambridge, and then make those decisions. And I did secure funding. I secured um, partial funding that covered the majority of my tuition, which was amazing. And then I got my offers to both Oxford and Cambridge. And when it came down to me making that final call and decision it really i chose cambridge because there was a south asian woman that was leading my department um and there was another south asian woman that was here at the time who's doing research in anti-racism work mm -hmm. and decolonial work and that was a big thing for me because i'm like i grew up in a system where it was so hard to be taught by someone that looked like me mm -hmm. um and that mattered for me as someone mm -hmm. that of course, still yeah. struggles to call myself a scholar an academic i'm like ooh me like yeah you know, and so to see that representation was so important and it also gave me the opening to say I could probably be creative and challenging with my thesis and my dissertation yeah. because I think they're going to let me push the boundaries. Whereas when I was looking at the program at Oxford, I didn't know if I could really be me and as liberal as I wanted to be in that, in that space. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So that's why I chose Cambridge. And that's how I am here after two years of applying, funding all of the whole journey. We made it back. <laughs> that is honestly, it's so amazing. and so inspiring. Like you're very, you're a resilient person. Anyone else that would have completely had knocked and shaken their world. And the the reasoning even and but the best thing is is at the end of the story you like you got to turn them down like I know like yeah that's a big thing like you're like okay so you're not gonna take me because of financial situations like mate I'm not coming anyway I'm not taking you. yeah exactly mm-hmm. <laughs> like I I had support from my family and friends but I also had people that were telling me like oh why put yourself through this really? like uh, they were like you know like and it was I get what they were saying. They didn't want to see me go through financial stress and strain. Mm. But, you know, I believed that. I was like, okay, I can. I literally wrote down my goals at the start of the year. I was like, I'm going to get at least 50% funding. That is the goal. Um, And, you know, a lot of people were telling me, just stay in Canada. Why are you so desperate on going to the UK? Like, just stay in Canada. Because technically, because I was a strong student at my university, I could have probably gotten most of my master's funded somewhere in Canada. I probably could have gotten you know, a paid teaching position while in it, if I stayed at my alumni university, there's a lot of more packages and options yeah. if you've already done your undergrad there. But I knew this is something I wanted for myself. I wanted to also prove to myself that I could access this space that, right. you know, I don't want years from now to look back and be like, yeah, I got in and I couldn't access the space because yeah. I come from a disadvantaged background. I was like, how do I work around that? Right. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. Like, I shouldn't just give up after that and say, yeah, it's just not meant for us. Like it's not meant for our people to be in those spaces because no, like I need to find a way to get myself in there to prove and then make that space more accessible for other students to get into. So true. So true. Like nothing worth having comes easy. It's as simple as that. (laughs) And like you said, like it's, it's your job. It's people like you who have the resilience to make those spaces and to make it accessible like you have to force your way into that room you know Mm -hmm. unfortunately the systems that are built are not gonna allow allow us there you know unless you do it yourself and just by you being there like literally when I when I saw um your profile and like everything you're doing and the fact that you're in Cambridge and you were offered even a place at Oxford you're the first Indo-Caribbean person that I know of that has gone to Cambridge and I'm sure there has been other people but the fact that like I'm seeing you that's a huge representation of a space that I never thought that would be fillable by people that look like us that come from our culture um and then like you said like the big colonial aspect behind it even and this is the thing like I didn't come from a private school Mm. I didn't um I literally my entire high school and university I was working at Cineplex which is the movie theaters popping popcorn in the summers like that was my life like you know what I mean like I grew up in that way I grew up in a neighborhood where you know we had police visits come in because it was a gang affiliated neighborhood like I did not grow up in an affluent area to be able to say oh I had the connections to get into the school Mm -hmm. I did not have any connections right but I think it's to be able to show other people in our community that they don't have to that they can Mm -hmm. I think that like we turned down even looking to apply to that space to begin with because like oh we're not qualified you know and that's and like we don't even let ourselves have a chance at it exactly it's not for us and so which is why like you said I'm sure there's been other Indo-Caribbean people here 
but I've been proudly stating that I am Indo-Caribbean and stating that I'm training and making sure those hashtags are being, making sure that people, it's being put on those platforms so that people in the community can actually see that and say, oh, wow, like, yeah. you know, I, you know, being open for people to come talk to me. And I think yeah. that's why, you know, I thought about the YouTube series I made and I was thinking about it for a while and I was like, you know what, like, if I can just put all this information I got out there for free, because yeah. I remember how hard it was to find that information, yeah. where to apply, how to apply, what does your CV need to look like, all of these questions. And so putting it out there for those first generation students that can't turn to their parents and ask mm. for help for this, you know, and it's so true like it's even just about like reaching high enough like I remember when it came to applying to universities like I come from a very similar background in terms of like where I live in London is the most immigrated place in London um it's very much a working class background um drugs gangs police everything um and a lot of the times when people were applying to unis they would kind of like set the bar low and my mm-hmm. thing was always, well, if I only apply to the best universities, then I'm bound to get one of them. Like I have a, a sum of shots here. I've got like five shots here. I'm going to yeah. at least get one. And I think what people don't realize is, as well is, unfortunately, education and universities are a business. Um, yeah. They do care about filling their spots so they can make money. And so yeah. there are other ways to get in. And I only applied for the best and I only got into the best. And I, yeah. everyone that applies to uni and asks me for advice now, I tell them, shoot for the best. Like, you can get it. Like, it's, it's not just for the people that you see that are already enrolled there. Like, make the yeah. space for yourself. Allow yourself mentally to get there, you know? 100%. It really has to do with a lot of that self-esteem mm-hmm. uh, and how we see ourselves, you know, how we see ourselves succeeding, how we see ourselves. Again, the representation. If you've never seen yourself, at a university like that you've never seen a professor that looks like you it's very hard for you to say oh I could apply there and be accepted mm. right mm. it's really hard to say that and so the evidence you know exactly it, that's exactly what it is and you know I was when I was doing my research and I found out that there were South Asian women in this department that were open to the conversations I wanted to have I knew that in my application I could be critical. I could right. say, I want to come in and I want to do this. And I knew that if they were reading the application, they would say, we want her. Mm. Because, you know, but like, for example, if I was reading for a place that, you know, I may have felt was a little bit more conservative, mm. then I don't know how, how much I would put myself into my personal statement the same way I may have done it in the other place because I knew that would be read well, right. you know? So I think, um, I for both of them I ended up staying really authentic to it because at this point my mentality was if you don't want me for who I am then don't want me at all I was like yeah. I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna make noise and I'm going to critique the systems and all of that and so apparently both of them liked it mm-hmm. um, at that point I, I think because of the field I'm in education and development like it, these are the dialogues that are taking place right now so mm-hmm. it worked for me but you know, I can imagine fields that are a little bit more conservative Yeah. Um, to talking about things like race and talking about intersectionality. It could be hard to, to get your research ideas across and um, validated for yeah. the departments to want to bring you on. And also, it's, it is even still a risk, like, because you may see people that look like you, but you don't know that they think like you. And they might, there's a, a part of it that you may feel like, well, did they get there because they conformed? Like, did they yeah. sell out? Did, like, how do I not know that they're just gonna um, tear down exactly what I'm trying to do? Because it's like, oh no, like 
there's not going to be more of us if you're acting like that, you know? So yeah. I think you're, you're really lucky in a sense. It sounds like you've got a good department behind you that allows you the, the space and breath. And it's led you to an amazing TED Talk, which I want to speak about because I was watching the whole thing with this massive smile on my face because I was just like, this is incredible. Like, first of all, TED is like my number one favorite platform. Like, I think it's just such a genius, genius concept. And then yeah. to see an Indo-Caribbean mixed girl on there as well mm-hmm. and her talking about all these things that anyone else would be literally petrified to challenge. Like, mm-hmm. how was that experience? Like, you must have, yeah. did you not cry, like, afterwards? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it was, you know, I've always, one of my dreams has always been Ted, right? Because as a spoken word artist, as a public speaker, yeah. I was like, the day I do that that's the day I'm gonna feel pretty accomplished like you know what I mean I found spoken word through TED literally that's how I found spoken word so it's like full circle it's it's amazing it's it's such a great platform and I've used it so much to help me with presentations to help me learn and understand concepts Mm. because I am not a textbook person I am a visual person I am like I like to engage with people so TED has been such a great platform for me as well and I remember you know when I saw that TEDx Cambridge was a thing I was like what are the chances like you know what are the chances so I messaged I shot the message to them being like hey like I was wondering how does it work I didn't see anything about how to apply to be a speaker I'm like I don't know if they just choose their speakers or what they do they get nominations so I asked them you know what the process was and then I shared my story with one of the people that worked there and then they told me okay like you should apply and they sent me the stuff when application came out and I was I was nervous because I was like, I am pitching something that is very, mm-hmm. you know, rebellious and out of mm-hmm. the norm. And, but also I almost felt like it was the right time because I feel like the, the world this past year has opened up to so many more conversations. Oh yeah. And anti-racism, decolonization, and very much like in part because of Black Lives Matter, because yeah. of you know, the movement within the Black community, it has opened up so much more space for conversations where people are willing, a little bit more willing than they were before to be critical of themselves and of their institutions and to say, okay, what do we do? I think people are also afraid to get canceled. Oh, 100%. 100%. (laughs) People are also afraid to get the public backlash. So for them, I almost sometimes I'm like, you know, was I, was my talk kind of a way to be like, look, we're doing stuff. And like, you know what I mean? And we're talking about this stuff. I was like, whatever, I got it. And I'm going to use it to voice what I need to voice. Um, and, you know, it's not easy because, I mean, I was bringing up like Cambridge's history uh-huh. and, you know, and it's, you're shedding light on something that has never really been talking talked about you before. add out all the dirty laundry, all of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, and for me, I, I remember sitting there and thinking about it. I'm like, uh, this may be the only time I ever get a TED Talk. I don't know if I'll ever get one again. And I was like, and if I'm sitting here, what am I trying to make out of this? And for me, it was like, I need to make sure people know that I'm Trini and Tamil. Right. I was like, I need to make sure because that has become so important. My identity has become so important to me because of that lack of representation. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, I was like, okay, so I want to do a spoken word because that's also my love language. That's how I speak. That's how I communicate. That is my, you know, um, my, my pillar, I think, in my identity as well. And so I was like, and then a big thing is I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my ancestors. And like, that was a big thing. Bangal Diary has helped me reflect a lot on about who my people are and who my grandparents and great parents were and what they went through and 
the privileges that I get to have today because of things they experience and they work through and survive through because um, to give us the, the freedom that we have right now. And so yeah. for me, paying homage to them at the very start of my piece and to, to do a whole piece about whom I am, who my people are, where we come from and why being here is so important, that meant a lot to me. Um, I was really happy that it was well received by the TEDx like community, by the organizers. You know, they loved it. They said it was a very needed conversation. You know, I worked with someone who was like my editor almost, but they never once tried to edit. It was literally, oh, maybe like explain this word a little bit or do okay. this. But it was that's never like, a, mm, that's a little much. That's a not once. She very much let me have the reins on my talk, which I really appreciated. And you know, doing it, it was nerve wracking. I didn't know how people were going to respond. Yeah. Um, of course, all my fellow racialized students and minority students were feeling it to so many degrees because they felt like it was speaking to them and their stories and, yeah. and they felt seen and heard. And I think that was really important. Um, I had some educators and white educators and uh, senior leadership individuals from my old university in Cambridge you know, reach out to say that this taught them a lot and that they're going to keep it in mind and they're going to rewatch it when they're, they're planning things and doing trainings wow. and working. It, it made that impact. Um, I also had, you know, a frustrating email that was about how it wasn't um, historically accurate. You're lying. Uh, yeah, girl, nah. <laughs> and how, you know, um, actually, it wasn't just black people that weren't allowed, but it was, um, it's because of religion, and it was like Anglican Christians, and a whole, it's like this whole conversation where it's like, this whole thing was about race, but someone was trying to not make it about race, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and trying to be like, well, you know, there was actually quite a few white people that came after the black people because mm -hmm. they were of a different religion and it's just that that's not what the dialogue's about though mm -hmm. like the dialogue isn't about which religion was allowed what the church did what the church ran mm -hmm. um, and also like just trying to understand that again people that were white people that are racialized people that are black brown like they all have very unique individual experiences you can't group that and say well you know there were white people that were also excluded so what about them it's like but this isn't I'm not using my platform to talk about them right now. I'm using yeah. it to talk about the racialized communities, but also communities that underwent slavery and indentorship, right. which did not happen to, to the white Anglican community. Like, you know what I mean? So yeah. it was, it was like someone was like denying everything else I was saying just to be like, but what about the other white people um, that weren't included? And it's like, but that's not what this talk is about. If you want to do a talk on that, please, by all means, educate me on that. Mm. Uh, not but educate other people yeah. about it. Like, don't go past me <laughs> but this talk is about like do you not hear anything else yeah about intergenerational trauma about like any of these aspects of being hyper visible and invisible right i'm like even if someone that was of a different religion that was white came into the school once they got into the space they had privilege as a white person that exactly. a person of color that came in in that same year wouldn't have had exactly right they get to graduate and walk through the world as white nobody looks at them and says are you anglican are you Protestant?" like yeah they get to walk through the world as a white person without privilege so a racialized person it's very different so 
the fact that that was completely denied that I didn't even reply to the email I'll be quite honest with you I, I don't blame you I don't blame you I read it I got vexed um I spoke with my like mentors and they were vexed for me and they were just like because it kind of proves exactly what you're saying in the how slow this process is taking and how behind we actually are when we don't realize it that was like that email is like a prime you you could have just put that email up and it would have just explained it all like how he literally he or she i don't know but they literally just fell into into exactly what you were trying to say like let me school you like it was like this full like three four paragraphs i'm like i did not need this lesson today i didn't well not- it was really just like let me show you how right you are like <laughs> like not how wrong you are but how right you are exactly and it was just yeah it was just one of those things where it's like you know you roll your eyes you go for it um, but you know what it means you know that you're doing something right if no yeah. one was to get angry like there would be nothing to be challenged and then what would be the point you're doing something right there someone someone racist out there was clearly ruffled and yeah. felt the need to say something but that is exactly why you're doing what you're doing is because the more you do it and the more mentalities you're challenging the less of those people you're gonna get yeah And I had like the comments from my dad that, you know, my parents were very supportive where they were happy and proud, but also I'm still trying to get them to understand the work that I do. And I think for my dad, again, I, I try to make myself understand as well that they came to this country in a different time where he's like, are you sure you're not to say stuff like that? Are you sure Mm. you're not going to get in trouble? You know, be careful how you say things like you don't want to make them mad you know, you don't want to do it in a way that, you know, it's fair as like me getting expelled or something to speak. And I think, you know, as when I was younger, I was just like, really upset about it, because I'm like, why can't you just understand me? But now I like have grown to understand that they came into this world where they had to assimilate, they had to drop so many parts of their culture and identity to fit in. Because if they didn't, they couldn't put food on the table. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they couldn't get the job, they couldn't do, they had to at that point in time when they came as immigrants and refugees and all of that, they had to sacrifice so much. And so his fear of if you speak out, you're going to get punished is, is real. And, you know, it's, it, I'm trying to explain and be like, times have really changed where we can speak out a bit more now. And, you know, we, we can challenge the systems and still stay standing with that, you know? Yeah. I'm literally uh, on, I'm on that same journey. Like sometimes yeah but that my older generation don't understand and it's it sometimes it can be a bit disheartening because you're like everyone else all the things you're trying to challenge are literally telling you don't speak and then it's your own family that turn around and say don't speak and you're like am am i doing something wrong like what is this is this wrong and then yeah I, i get it it's but I'm, I feel like I'm a bit behind on that journey where I am trying to understand, but it can be a bit overwhelmingly frustrating for me. It is, it is frustrating. And you know what? Like, I think also as a like, brown woman too, like, you know, it's kind of this like subjected of like, keep quiet, you know, yes. don't, don't be too outspoken, yeah. you know? Like when you're a woman, it's like, why do you care so much? But when it's a man, it's like, wow, he's got great opinions. Like... This is the thing, though. And I'm like, y'all watching the news, y'all will talk about Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, all these people that led movements. And I'm just like, and, you know, you talk greatly of them, but, like, mm. do you not see the work that we do as a movement as well? Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? And so it's, 
again, like, yeah, being a woman that is from a culture that tends to keep women a little bit more, you know, in the box and have these gender roles of what a woman should look like, what a woman should be like. It's, it's those struggles of like challenge that and being like, no, listen, I'm outspoken. Like this is who I am and I'm going to, you know, speak out about these issues. Yeah. It almost feels like they've never seen enough representation of a woman speaking out freely that when they see it, it kind of scares them as if we're going to go rogue and like start destroying things. And it's like our most powerful thing is our voice and our thoughts and our opinions. And my passion is often mistaken for anger yeah and it's like well a part of it yeah I am kind of angry but every right to be yeah but as yeah I struggle with that a lot sometimes it it, a lot of like in the past it has made me just shut up and sit down but now it's kind of like no like why the fuck should I shut up and sit down it feels the fire a bit more now yeah and I think it's also interesting like you know, when they say, okay, if you're going to do it, do it in a dainty way, do it in a polite mm-hmm. way. You know, like you're using this kind of language. I'm like, oh my gosh, like one, I'm, I know how to navigate the system, right? Mm-hmm. Like you've grown up in it. So I do know when you got to put on the hats, when you have to code switch. Yeah. I know yeah. in certain rooms, I can't go in and just be like, with the anger and the passion, expect there's some people that I might have to sit with and sway them into this dialogue and conversation. Growing up in a system where I've worked with senior leadership, I've worked with faculty, I've worked in these spaces around anti-racism, you know, there is that passion, there is that anger that you can have, but you also have to have a level of understanding when you right. go in that you are trying to change or help people unlearn things that they truly believe. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you go in with just that anger and passion, it's not going to make no. as much of a difference as if you sit down and help them realize for themselves mm-hmm. that, hey, you know, maybe this is, and it, it sucks because we shouldn't have to teach people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Not honest, you know, but I sometimes find to make that effective change, you have to know your audience. You have to know how you're going to yeah. play it. I mean, yeah, exactly. You're you're changing a mindset that has just, for them, has just always been there. And it's never been challenged. It's never, to them, it's like, I I have a lot of friends where I know that they think that a lot of their thought process isn't damaging or harmful. And it's just because they don't have that lived experience. Like Mm -hmm. they haven't walked a mile in someone else's shoes because they've been in this kind of really secure environment. Um, And so, like, I always try and approach things with a sense of compassion, but then it's just when it's met with, like, oh, you got to, qu- like, quiet down. That's when I'm like, okay, now, like, the gloves are coming off. <laughs> like, yeah, me up. yeah, exactly. Um, but speaking of girls being loud and proud, mm-hmm. so tell me about Brown Girl Diary. Um, yeah. How did it form? Um, what were your original goals like in this platform? How did it start, you know, with joining the other girls? Did you know them before? Like, how did it all get together? Yeah. So actually it was founded by Ashley, um, who's our founder, Ashley Abdul. Um, and she had it up and running for almost a year, I think, before we got in, um, involved. And I believe that she, you know, obviously I can't speak for her, but I know that she also grew up you know, in the same areas as me and grew up very much so with the Black community um, and the Black Caribbean community, which is quite predominant in our neighborhood areas because 
she never really felt like a part of the South Asian community. Right. Um, and all of the resources, all of the programs, all of that stuff was catered towards, you know, Afro-Caribbeans right. um, or South Asians. And there was just never any space or dialogue about Indo-Caribbean identity. Mm. And for her, it was that, you know, like I fit into this group, they've accepted me, but it's still not my group. It's still not really explaining my identity and explaining mm. some of the things that I experience that are different from other people that cannot relate, you know? So for her, it was about creating a space that had never been created before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it started off for her, I think she received a grant and did like a summer program, um, an arts outreach program with young girls, I think like 14 to 18 or so. Um, and they did like a spoken word, dance, poetry, different art workshops to explore identity. And they put on a showcase in the community, bringing together into Caribbean people. At this point, I had no idea, had never met. Um, and it was at one point when I was in university, actually, in that fourth year, when I was going through the whole getting into Oxford, figuring out I can't afford it, that I came across it because um, one of my high school friends had shared it on social media. And I was like, oh, interesting. And I followed the page and I was like, Indo-Caribbean? I've never seen this before, an Indo-Caribbean mm-hmm. page. And so I thought it was really cool. Um, and then I started to engage with the page. So they'd have, it was always a very open, welcoming space where everyone was part of this community. So there'd be posts like, how's everybody doing? Like comment below, like, what are your goals? And so I would engage because I felt like, wow, like these are other people, you know, that are Indo-Caribbean. And I always in the back of my head was like, I would like to get involved with this because I've never had an Indo-Caribbean space before. At that time, I was the president of the African Caribbean Student Association at my school. Um, so I've always been a part of the African Caribbean community and like been the Indo-Caribbean representation in that, you know, but even in that, like there wasn't other people really that looked like me or understood, you know, there's only a few of us, um, near the end where we brought in chutney music and we're teaching people about that too. So for me to see this group, it was, it was a lot. And then I remember, I think she put out a call for bloggers or people that were interested and my first engagement with BGD was a blog. Um, I wrote a blog called, um, it was about the hush-hush culture, mm-hmm. how we don't talk about, you know, a lot of the things that happen in our life, whether it's abuse, whether it's alcoholism, these are a lot of things. And, it, you know, a lot of people were able to relate to the hush-hush culture of the Caribbean community mm-hmm. and how I learned family secrets many, many years later, like all of these things that were kept from us. And... I remember Ashley reached out saying, you know, like, I'm looking to expand the team. Would you be interested? I thought about you because, you know, I had always been DMing, engaging, you know, when we were talking and I said, this is such an amazing platform. And then I told her about how I was, you know, going to have to turn down Oxford and all this journey and whatnot. So we ended up, um, you know, just clicking and she reached out to a couple people that she had in mind. And then I brought on a couple people, um, like my sisters on there, as well as one of my best friends from high school. So I brought for a couple people that I thought would be good candidates. And we kind of clicked really well. And everybody just kind of fell into place. And we said, you know, how are we going to take this forward? What are we going to do? And a year later, we're at 10,000 followers. Yeah, you guys are reaching high so fast. Together, we, when we first started, it was like 900 people. And it was like maybe like 20 likes on a blog. Like yeah. it, was, but it was just the fact that, oh, wow, there's a space. And then we start to think about, 
you know, how do we want to construct this? What kind of things do we want? And everyone was bringing in different strengths, different ideas. And I think Ashley had a really good, like, foundation of this is what this the space is about and for it's a space mm. for us by us mm. um and she really i think helped us see that we could create space for ourselves instead of just like feeling like you know the south asian space isn't for us the caribbean space isn't for us like, this is ours mm. um and we really we ran with it and you know it it was not easy i mean when we first started I feel like we were playing damage control like 24 seven constantly on the phone with one another on three way calls being like, okay, like, you know, is this post okay? Like, you know, what are we doing? Yeah. The first one that we got the most attention for, I guess, but it was also very like two sided was, it was a post about Lily Singh. Um, oh. Yeah. And it was about one of her videos and about, uh, talking about like appropriation of like Caribbean culture and stuff like that and like the South Asian community not ever accepting or like you know giving credits to Indo-Caribbean community and stuff like that so we were it brought a lot of backlash also as much as it brought a lot of Indo-Caribbean that were like yes finally we're talking about this mm. about people like passing as Indo-Caribbean and all these different things without acknowledging and then it brought a lot of people that from the South Asian community as well that were just like, Oh, you guys are just wannabes. You're not really South Asian. And like, so I just remember us going through the comments, being like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. you know, there was just so much that was going on and we were so new to the, to the conversation, to the platform. And we've learned how to have these conversations. I think yeah. in a much more um, meaningful way now yeah. where we have like, you know, much better dialogue around these situations and it's been a learning process for all of us, I think. And we've really been able to grow and we've had people grow with us and stay with us and bring on more. And we've had so many, you know, different major panels and major, um, major, major campaigns that took place over this past year. Yeah. That I think really stabilized the growth of BGD. I wish I saw, is that blog still up? I would love to read it. Yeah, it, it wasn't a blog. It was just like a little post okay yeah because that 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 is something that I feel like we that isn't talked about enough actually like even I mentioned it when it when we were on the live of about my kind of feelings towards uh, this kind of cool fetishization that often comes from the South Asian community it's like sometimes you hate us sometimes you love us and it's it's quite hard for a lot of people in the Indo-Caribbean community because you so badly want to be a part of them because that's your heritage and that's how people perceive you anyway. Um, But you so badly kind of feel this like push pull situation from them. Sometimes, you know, you're just, they don't want you. And then sometimes they want you so much that they forget that you're there and just completely take over. And I feel like people want your culture, want your culture. Exactly. And yeah, exactly. And then it make, it brings it back to that kind of, like like we were commodities like we were just goods to be transported so it isn't really even about us about our flesh about the fact that we're human beings it's just about what we've brought to the table is what you want to take it's kind of like this weird colonialist stance it's strange and i think it was such a sensitive topic because people really felt it you know because i think a lot of people, I've heard a lot of like Indo-Caribbean women that have talked about, you know, dating mm. and about how South Asian men, like their parents would not accept them and would not see them as 
you know, valid because they were Indo-Caribbean. They didn't see them as actually South Asian or Indian. But then, you know, you have all of these South Asian men as well that are like loving the dance hall. They're so good. Right, yeah. Uh, all of this stuff. And you're kind of like, your family would never accept me. It's like, yeah. you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough because we want this place where we have this like beautiful melting pot where people are all accepting of one another's culture and sharing. Mm. These but at the same time, you're protective of your culture when it's not respected in other areas, you know? And also when it's been so abused in the past, like yeah. our people have been abused and to come to this point where we can be proud of a culture that we are in yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I'm just not letting anyone come in and tamper with that. Like, I'm not going to let yeah. you use it as something to be abused again. Like, it's just yeah. not going to happen. Um, yeah. But so talking about the the fact that you guys have been reaching your house. So what what are your ambitions for the platform? Like, where, how far do you want to take this? Like, I mean, honestly, when I think about BGD, I just I think about it as being the hub. Like, mm. You know what I mean? The space. For Indo-Caribbean people to to come together, and I know right now we focus on like the Indo-Caribbean woman identity, and yeah. you know because I mean we are all Indo-Caribbean women um, that can speak to that, you know. And I think there's a lot that needs to have be happening with Indo-Caribbean men as well, though. Like mm. the, there has to be conversations that are happening in that community spaces for that community. We had I don't know if you've watched our Indo-Caribbean men's panel, mm-hmm. but it was so eye-opening for me to learn so much about some of the issues within the community. Um, and I think there needs to be more bridging between between all of the genders and all the different intersecting identities in our community to talk about the Indo-Caribbean experience as a general. So I see it as being a hub and a space that allows that to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, I would hope to see, you know, more programmings, more things like I think COVID put a big damper yeah. on a lot of potentials that could have been a lot of meetups, a lot of workshops, a lot of in-person things but it also gave us the opportunity to do a lot of virtual things mm-hmm. i mean and reach people like you in the uk reach people around the world because i don't think we would have thought about doing zoom calls and like monthly zoom yeah. calls. i really don't think we would have thought of that if it wasn't for covid i think we would yeah. have been like all right we're gonna do um monthly limes in the park and we would have maybe have more of a toronto focus mm-hmm. than we would have on an international scale mm-hmm. so i think covid almost played into helping us build the community first and foremost on an international level but now the challenge is going to be even without COVID how do we continue to cater to these communities right. that are spread out everywhere right yeah um, so I see it being a place that people are able to recognize when they think about the Indo-Caribbean community or when they talk about the Indo-Caribbean identity that they can refer people to that space to say hey like there's a whole bunch of different articles and fun. and that's the thing I think we have the the difficult conversations on BGD, we have the critical conversations, but we also have the fun stuff. We have the mm-hmm. recipes and we have the music and the, you know, people just engaging with one another, the makeup artists. Like we have all of the culture and the social and the lifestyle stuff, as well as the academic, the advocacy. Yeah. Like I think there needs to be a space for both of them to be happening. Yeah. Um, because I think it's so important that also to understand that that influences. Yeah one another right our, our culture and the things that we embrace and hold on to influence the way that we do advocacy work the way that yeah, we do 100%. Um, academic work as well I'm so excited to see like everything that comes it's already growing so fast that yeah. I can just tell that by the time everything opens up again and the pandemic is like a thing of the past like you guys are going to be like truly unstoppable mm-hmm. um so your time in the UK is kind of coming to an end right 
So what's your impression of the Indo-Caribbean UK community here? I honestly did not know they existed. Like, <laughs> to the degree that they exist, I, I know when you talk to people in Toronto, because mostly when I think about the Indo-Caribbean diaspora, for me, it was Toronto and New York. Those were the two places. Yeah. And then I know everyone has like one British family. Like everyone has one family in London and that's all. So, but I didn't, I guess when you think one, 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 it makes up a whole it family. Makes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the whole community. I think from you, I've learned so much about the Indo-Caribbean Muslim community. And I think that was something because I grew up in an Indo-Caribbean Hindu family mm. that, you know, and I do have some family members that are Muslim, but I didn't grow up around mosques. I didn't grow up around um, the culture in the way that you've been able to teach me so much about the history of it here um, and, you know, how creation of these spaces really helped form identity. Um, and I think also the Windrush generation, these are all things that I had no idea that the Indo-Caribbean community was a part of. So I've yeah. learned so much by having these com- collaborations and conversations. Yeah. Um, I also think that everyone here in the UK genuinely is looking for a space. Oh yeah. For community. I mean, you know, you've been on the monthly calls that we do. Yeah. Um, and I think people are just eager to join and be on that space to say like, there's other people that look like me here and we can have a conversation about having similar feelings. Um, so I would love to see how that continues to grow as well and how the community comes together. I think with Caribbean people, you know, we've talked about in the past, everyone's trying to do their own thing. And yeah. How do we come together and just solidify something that is going to... It's about, it- yeah, because like, it's so, like, when we're on those calls, mm-hmm. we're all talking, like, unsure, like, it, does, does this happen to you guys? I don't know yeah. if this happens. To you. It's almost like we're all experience basically the same thing, which is what our culture and identity is, but it just hasn't been established. You know what I mean? There's not like this handbook, you know, like with other cultures, you kind of, there's like these set amount of things that you know are your traditions in your cultures, but with us, cause it's never been really established. Yeah. We're all like, do you guys do this? Do you think that, do you have this in your family? And it's like, yeah, we all do like, but we just don't know we do. Yeah, no, exactly. And the thing is like, I think we're still, making the connections of Indo-Caribbean identity as being the umbrella. Mm. Because for me, my whole life has always been Trini, 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 I'm Trini. Yeah. And when I'm looking up things, I'm looking for Trini this, Trini that. Mm. I never would Google Indo-Caribbean this, Indo-Caribbean that. That was never something I would think of. If I'm looking for something umbrella, I would say Caribbean or South Asian. Yeah. Now we've made this Indo-Caribbean identity umbrella that includes people from Jamaica, Mauritius. Yeah. Um, everywhere all of us are able to fall under the umbrella and talk about these experiences so now i'm hoping we get to a point where if we google indo-caribbean xyz things pop up yeah like you know what i mean like yeah. that maybe one day we have a community center that I is know. you know like these are the things that we could only dream of but these spaces you know that are happening for all these other communities acknowledging that we don't have spaces in these other communities that have been carved out so we have to carve out our our own space Mm -hmm. I'm always when I'm thinking about like the future of like the Indo-Caribbean community I I always have this picture of like a museum exhibition in my head and I'm like everything that we create better be in that bloody like museum exhibition um but final question what are your hopes for the larger Indo-Caribbean community what what are you hoping for us 
I think I hope that we can come together. Mm. I think that's a, I feel like we're so spread out and being able to like not even like come together locally. So for all of you that are spread out in the UK to be able to come together and say, okay, like something like that, we want to put on an exhibit. We want like you know what I mean? To be able to mm. come together and work together, like have collective resilience together, I think. Yeah. That is really important. But also then the international boundaries, right? For us to maintain the kind of relationship that we have right now. Like, you know, if you ever come to the to Canada, if I ever come back to the UK, like we have these relationships because we are part of that larger identity. Yeah. So I would hope to be able to see collective resilience that is not just localized but transnational. Yeah. Um, and then also being able to connect back to I think our islands and our home our homelands and like I think um you know the diaspora identity is very different than mm-hmm. my cousins living in Trinidad like yeah. they have a yeah. very different idea they don't call themselves Inter-Caribbean right they're just yeah. Trinidad they're from Trinidad so it's a very different living outside of the Caribbean is very different um but being able to bridge those gaps that we have Mm. um and then i think also just more awareness so people actually know who we are what we are Mm. i think you know people look at us and they assume identities onto us because of how we look and i think i would hope there would be a time where people would actually the one thing that might come to the mind is this person indian or indo-caribbean right that would be amazing if it's not just like people look at me and be like oh she's tamil she's indian those are my two options but that the fact Indo-Caribbean is even something they could think about. Yeah. That, that it's, it's so common in our language when we talk about ethnic identities Yeah, that it becomes so normalized. I would hope that we get to a point where, you know, I guess putting it on the census, all these things, little, little, recognizing things in school history, yeah. um, you know, exhibits, making it more publicized that this is an identity and we need to stop being like oh well we have the south asian the caribbean community so yeah we're good we have to be the ones that say okay that that's not good enough for us because it really doesn't speak to us yeah it really doesn't the resources are not for us and for what we're going through and our intergenerational issues and trauma and history of indentorship it's so unique that we need to create our own space yeah it's needed like there's no way my ancestors went through all of that just to be forgotten or erased or not represented but best know that when i come to canada yeah it's gonna happen like i i want to hit up all the indo-caribbean hotspots of the world like i need to see everyone um but that brings us to the end so where can people find you so um, (laughs) (laughs) you can find me on instagram neroshabi underscore 76 um and you can also find me on linkedin or shabal kumar i've been trying to push a lot more people on that especially from our community mm-hmm. and our young generation because there's a lot of great opportunities on linkedin and networking things and i think again not having that generational knowledge not having being a first generation student not knowing how to navigate that space let's professional network w- with one another let's you know put each other on these spots and places um facebook Narosh shabal kumar same thing but yeah, also YouTube. You can check out that channel if you want to watch some different spoken words, but also if you want to learn more about that Oxford journey and you want tips on how to apply to school and how to navigate it and the That's financial difficulties. <laughs> so what's the YouTube channel called, sir? Nurse Balkamar as well. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, girls. Thank you, Jana. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure and lockdown's coming down, so we have to meet up, honestly. Yeah.
Yes, <laughs> definitely. All right. Thank you so much. And hopefully I'll get to see you soon and chat soon. Thank you.